was happy in the haze of a drunken hour But heaven knows I'm miserable now I was looking for a job and then I found a job And heaven knows I'm miserable now In my life Why do I give valuable time To people who don't care if I Welcome to the Strange Brew podcast. My name's Jason Barnard, and that was The Smiths, and heaven knows I'm miserable now. I've got the huge pleasure today to welcome producer Stephen Street here, who's picked 10 favourite tracks that he's worked on, mainly produced, but the first one was a track where you were you involved in engineering at the time. Yeah, I mean, the, tra- the tracks that I've chosen for this kind of podcast this evening, they're tracks that throughout my career have been uh, at pivotal and very important stages. 
And heaven knows I'm miserable now was the very first session that I ever did with the Smiths. Uh, at the time, I was a, an in-house engineer at Island Records, and the Smiths came in to use the studio one weekend, and John Porter was the producer on that session. But, you know, if I hadn't done that session, things could have been so different. My career could have taken a completely different trajectory. And, and um, you know, as I say, in, in this game of, of recording uh, in the music industry, you, you do need lucky breaks. And, and that was certainly one of them, you know, that I had there. Yeah. And on the podcast, we've, uh, I've spoken to everyone from uh, Jeff Emmerich, Ken Scott, etc. Up until uh, Richard Digby Smith, who was um, an in-house island engineer. Yeah. I assisted him many times. Oh, right. Oh, well, brilliant. Yeah. So you were actually originally in, in bands, but made the the leap onto the other side of the desk. Yeah, I kind of felt frustrated where I was going as far as being a band member, you know, in a band. And, and at the time, I was kind of really kind of interested in the records that the likes of John Leckie uh, uh, and obviously before then, Ken Scott had made. But there were a lot of you kind of younger uh, engineer producers who were doing a, a, like Steve Lillywhite, Martin Russian, Martin Hannett, that were doing these great kind of post-punk records at, you know, at the very t- tail end of the 1970s, early 80s. And I thought, well, that's a route these guys have taken. You know, they've, they've learned how to become good recording engineers, and that's enabled them to progress to record to uh, record production. So I, I kind of thought, I'm going to try and see if I can do the same path. So I just basically wrote to all the studios I could possibly find. And uh, after a kind of... You know, a frustrating start. Finally, Island Records came back to me and offered me an interview, and um, I managed to kind of talk my way into a job there, and uh, which was wonderful because it was a great place to start. It said that the Smiths were one of your first sessions as a an in-house engineer. Is that actually accurate? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I hadn't really been, you know, I kind of put, I had progressed from being an assistant to an engineer rather rapidly because. For a while, I was the only assistant at the studio. So I was, you know, I was getting a lot of work. You know, I was kind of like working pretty, pretty much nonstop for a short while. Yeah. And because I had 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 experience working as a musician, you know, in bands doing some recording, I kind of, I wasn't totally green to the whole process. So dare I say so. And also due to the fact that the engineers were very kind and they shared all their, their knowledge with me, I, I learned pretty quickly. And, and as I say, I became an in-house engineer. And within a few months of st- getting to that particular level uh, Island Records took this booking it was at a weekend you see so they kind of gave it to one of the junior engineers <laughs> to deal with and uh, I always remember my studio manager saying to me oh, we've got a band coming at the weekend can you do the session and I kind of said to him yeah, yeah who is it he said oh it's a band on rough trade called the Smiths and I was like uh, <clears throat> yes because I actually was aware of who they were they'd been on top of the pops doing this charming man so and I was taken away with them you know, I was blown away by what they'd you know, yeah. I mean, Morrissey was so original as a, a new front man and Johnny's guitar playing was great. The whole band were great. So I, I jumped at the chance and I just went out of my way on that session to be as helpful <laughs> and as kind of creative and, and, and you know, just try to be as good as I possibly could, hoping that they would notice. And uh, thank God they did. And that's the interesting thing about the Smiths. Obviously, there, there were a lot of, of great bands in, in the 80s, but... The music of the Smiths doesn't date itself necessarily to that period, and they definitely ploughed their own paths in relation to their, their their sound compared to some of the the acts that are around in that period. That you can date it. Was that very clear working with them that it was a bit more organic? Yeah, I mean they were kind of you know following their own path. Really, they weren't kind of enthralled to anybody else. I think they were very very uh, assured of what they were doing and confident. 
and, and you're quite correct. I think it has aged very well. You know, uh, as you said, a lot of those kind of 80s productions, you know, with the big kind of gunshot snares and everything have, mm. have aged pretty badly. But, um, you know, um, the quality of the writing and, and, dare I say, the playing and hopefully the sound too, has matured well and hasn't aged too badly at all. So, you know, as I say, and as I say, it was such a pivotal moment for me. If I hadn't done that session, everything could have been so different. I mean, even further on down the line, you know, me, me, me kind of then going on, carrying on working with Morrissey for the beginning of his solo career, yeah, it could have all been so very, very different, you know. And in terms of your work with the Smiths, you gravitated from engineer to eventually towards the end of the career being as a producer was that just a felt like a a natural step given that you'd been working yeah exactly I mean you know uh, it was a gradual thing I mean obviously the first session I did there's John Porter there as a producer and then they asked to work with me on my own with the band now when you're working as a recording engineer with a band completely on your own you're beginning to put in a few kind of judgments that are kind of you know as a producer uh, would that, that a producer would make rather so bit by bit you're kind of as long as you make the right decisions as well you're kind of gaining their confidence and hopefully they kind of entrust certain production choices to you and that's really that was the natural path that I took you know uh, you know I was kind of given an engineering credit on Meters Murder and then I got a production percentage on The Queen is Dead but not a production credit and then by the time we got to Strange Ways I was a co-producer so it was a nice kind of gradual step up the ladder as it were. And so Strange Ways as producer and that was very much at the at the end of The Smiths so what was the path in terms of our next song being a suede head debut Morrissey single right. what was the path in relation to moving on from the Smiths to to Morrissey well when we finished Strange Ways um there was nothing really left in the can I mean it was a great session a lot of people think that the Smiths because they split up were arguing on the session and you know that and it was a you know a, a painful experience but it wasn't we actually had a lot of fun making Strange Ways and we were all very very proud of it but there was this kind of problem lurking in the background about management. You know, uh, Johnny had thought they'd found a new manager that was going to be great and take a lot of the weight off of his shoulders. And although Morrissey originally went along with that idea, he then changed his mind about this manager. And it kind of, it, and Johnny just had, had had enough of all the kind of the mind games in that respect. Nothing to do with the recording. Uh, the recording was fine. Yeah. So anyway, as I say, that they split up, and I really thought it was just a small tiff, and they would they would they would be back together again in a few months. But there were no B sides recorded really for what was going to become the new single from the Strange Ways album. And we tried a session with another guitar player, which didn't work out. And uh, I I just had some ideas that I'd been recording kind of on my four track at home, you know, and I, and they were on cassettes and things, and I just kind of did a I sent off a cassette to Morrissey with some ideas saying, you know, forgive me for being presumptuous, but if there's anything here that could be useful as a B-side or whatever, you know, mm. um, feel free to let me know. And, you know, I was just trying to be helpful, really. I was just trying to keep everything ticking over. But then um, uh, he came back to me, you know, within a week or so with a postcard saying, I want to make a solo record and I want you to work with you with this, you know, with these songs. So, I just dropped everything else that I was doing at the time and just focused purely on writing and writing and writing because obviously to get one good song, sometimes you've got to write a bunch. But, you know, and just kind of sending off these cassettes to him all the time, hoping that we would, um, you know, we, we would kind of get an album's worth of material together. 
And um, fortunately, our first session, we went in the studio together and it was nail biting because, you know, uh, there was myself. Yeah. I'd got Vinnie Riley in from Jurity Column because I'd worked with Jurity Column and I thought we were from Manchester. So, you know, there might be a kind of yeah. Morrissey would kind of get on with him and Vinnie can play. You know, he's a great guitar player, very different to Johnny, yeah. uh, very different to me in my playing. But he's got a virtuosity which might be useful, you know. And then there's a great session drummer called Andrew Paresi. And I played bass and rhythm guitar and engineered. And, you know, I mean, it was quite a lot to take on, to be honest. But I was so excited. I, you know, I had just got carried away with the the energy that I felt kind of burning inside. And fortunately, in that very first session we did, uh, at the same studio where we had recorded Strange Ways, the studio called The Warhol, in that first session, we did record Suedehead. And once I had that in the can, I thought, this could work. You know, this, this, really, this, this really could work. And uh, so, yeah, that was, again, another pivotal song uh, for me.
when you take the example of Suedehead, how did your original music or ideas for that song compare to the, the final product? How did that evolve? Pretty similar in, in the sense I actually wrote a lot of that song around the kind of uh, the, the bass line. One thing I noticed working with Johnny and Morrissey was that although Johnny wrote primarily on guitar, the bass lines and all the Smith songs are very important because Morrissey does his pitching off of what the bass does quite yeah. often rather than following every single intricacy in the guitar line. I think so anyway. I'd, I'd noticed that, you know, that a, a, a bass line was quite crucial to all the Smith songs, you know, hence the reason why you don't get a bass line going duh, 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 duh on, on the Smith song because it just, yeah. just doesn't work, you know. It could work for other genres, but it doesn't work for, you know, for them at all. I had, you know, I had the idea of uh, the, um, uh, you know, the general kind of the drum track I wanted, the bass line, you know, how the, the guitars were going. Really added a little bit more keyboards for me on the song. I didn't have a piano on the original demo, but we added piano to the guitar and stuff. So it was just, the thing with Morrissey is that sometimes you write a song and suddenly you have to change the key at the last moment because he suddenly realises it's not the right, quite the right key for him. So I, I think this might have been one where we got away without having to change the key. But there were one or two others where you know, suddenly you go, actually, we've got to change it, a tone up or a tone down or whatever. Mm. But, um, you know, it was it was so, I just knew, I just had that gut feeling once we kind of got this song done uh and he put his vocal on it was like yes this could this really could work you know and uh and it was and it gave us the the kind of the energy to kind of we took a break after that first two week session at the warhol returned home i returned to london he returned to manchester and i carried on chipping away writing more songs you know things like late night Walden street came in that second batch of songs you know so it was it was great. It was a very productive time. I mean, when I think about it, you know, we didn't actually come up with the idea of doing a Morrissey solo record together until the very end of August. And then the first session, I think, was at the end of September. And the album was done and dusted and mixed by Christmas of that same year. It was a pretty quick turnaround. Was that 87? Yeah. And the album came out in 88. For, um, yeah. Swedehead came out in February 88. It actually hit the charts the same day as my first son was born, so it was quite a, you know, a big day for me. <laughs> and uh, I mostly got back in touch again because it, I was, it was there was no communication at all after we'd finished make, making the album. Uh, I think he was nervous about how it was going to be received, and but you know, I mean, Swedehead came out. I think it was single of the week in all the all, in all the magazines and papers. That when, and I think that's when he thought, okay, I'll give Stephen a call again and see if we can do some more. So that's what we you know, that's what we did. That's quite a, a leap from, say, 1984 to 1987, isn't it? From being assistant yeah, engineer but, and, and then... But sometimes that happens. I mean, the energy of youth, you know, <laughs> I mean, that's what happened. I mean, you, you know, you, you look at like Paul Weller and the jam. I mean, I think, I think they were 17 when they got their record deal, you know. I mean, you see what people have done uh, by a certain age back then. And it's yeah. it's frightening. Most people, have, you know, that's kind of 23 now and they, they, they haven't even got out of uni yet. You know, whereas the Smiths have been touring for four years or something, you know, or whatever, you know, or perhaps not three, well, three years, whatever. But, you know, you get my point. You know, I think people just kind of got on with it a bit more and kind of and, and uh, use that energy that they have at that point in their lives to kind of to do a lot, you know. Yeah, yeah. So we now move on a year or two and the Triffids New Year's greetings from the Black Swan album. How did you get to work with David McComb then? I think they, I mean, I, well, I, I was a big fan of the Triffids. I, I'd been slowly aware of their ascension through the, uh, you know, the media and, and, and so on. And I was I kind of 
you know, they're one of those kind of guitar bands that I was very aware of that I liked. But they're more than just a guitar band, but predominantly, you know, guitar. Yeah. But anyway, uh, and Island Records signed them and they expressed an interest in working with me. So I was over the moon because I was really into what they were doing. And then David sent me this very, very meticulous uh, kind of cassette with all the demos they'd done for this. They, 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 they demoed about 20 songs, I think, for this album. Yeah. So it was quite a lot to delve into. And some of it was operatic. You know, some had this opera singer singing on it. Some tracks were electronic. I mean, it was really quite a broad spread of, of, of styles and, and genres. But I actually really enjoyed that. I thought, I really want to do that. And I thought, I'd be great. So, uh, again, we went to this residential studio down in Cornwall. And um, I think it was called The Justice Room. I mean, it's no longer there. It's, it closed down a long, long time ago. But it was an interesting setup down there. And um, we had one kind of hall-type room that was set up as a kind of recording area. And then the other recording area that we found we liked that worked in the building was actually the living room, mm. you know, you know uh, which uh, with the sofas and everything. But we moved everything back a little bit and we did some recording in there. It was, it was really kind of, you know, a, a fun session to do. And the quality of the writing is, is just superb. And bless him, you know, David is gone. He's been yeah. long gone, and but far too early, you know, far too early in his life. And, but he's one of the finest lyricists uh, uh, that I, I, I've worked with some great lyricists over the years, but you know, he's up there with the best. And this really struck me, this song, because, you know, New Year in, in England, it's all dark and cold and miserable. But uh, in, in this song, the lyrics are kind of relating about this hot, steamy time in Australia. And I just found it really kind of uh, quite enthralling and, and, and captivating. And I just love the sentiment and the vibe of this song. Again, again, the Triffids are one of those bands that not many people realise that I've worked with. Yeah. So, again, that was another reason why I wanted to bring it onto this uh, collection of songs we're playing tonight. Did that give you a bit of a stretch recording that album because of the range of styles? that The White Album has been referenced as a, a touch point for that album in the past. Yes, it was a stretch, but it was a stretch I wanted to do. And I'm a big fan of the White Album, you know. Um, I mean, that is the thing. And even with the Smiths, you know, we never made songs that sounded all the same, you know. I mean, that's the best bands, like the Beatles and the Smiths, and, you know, they, they can do that. They can do a song that is kind of, uh, for instance, something like Golfing in a Coma, which is not that far from the kind of, you know, kind of reggae-ish piano type thing, you know, and then yeah. kind of doing something really quite heavy, like, you know, Death of a Disco Dancer, you know. I mean, you know, and the same thing with the, the White Album. I, I still love that record because you weren't always just trapped in one kind of sound from beginning to end. I, I quite enjoy, enjoy genre-hopping albums in some ways. I find them more interesting to listen to. Well, 
Long walk to the corner shop It's January heat It's a big decision Try to think of you all night But I send you a New Year's kiss And I hope you will remember me like this Like this I send you a New Year's Weekly social security check I can make it on a stumble But I can't keep track of Where it went I've got a good black dog So I don't need a phone It's no bad weather coming In his old dog Don't need no eyewitness news No 7-Eleven No eyewitness news No 7-Eleven No sudden fire chicken no man from potential Give me good times Easy terms I with this news The evening when the skyline is cut in two By a figure closely resembling you Where matches won't light And I double take Wind shutters to a hole Main roads are washed out And all around As far as the eye can see And all around As far as the eye can see Oh, and all around As far as the night can see He's just a gateway Of you Back. 
So next we get to The Cranberries' Dreams from their debut album. Reading about that album, the band had been recording with another producer at the start, but working with that producer, that the sounds had beats and, again, things that potentially now would date that album. But when you listen to Dreams Now, a similar way to The Smiths, it's got that timeless sound which doesn't necessarily pigeon itself to the early 90s. In terms of connecting with the group, was that something that they reached out to you? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the Cranberries, again, again, another Island, Island Records uh, act, um, they'd signed to Ireland. They signed to Ireland in America. A guy called Denny Cordell had signed them. And, um, yeah, they, they'd had their fingers burnt slightly. The, the producer who was kind of managing them also slightly too at the beginning of their career in Limerick, which is the hometown, uh, their hometown, I think they'd done an initial EP, which caused a bit of a buzz. So they thought, okay, well, that's just going great. We'll give them up. We'll do the album with them. But when they actually started doing the album, I think they realised it wasn't really going to work. So uh, Denny asked them who they'd like to work with. And, you know, they were they were Smith's fans, uh, the Cranberries. And so they expressed an interest in working with myself. Um, so, yeah, I kind of said, yeah, let me uh, listen to the demos. And I went to see them play live and, they weren't great live. I've got to admit, they, they were still very, very green. You know, they were kind of, you know, very naive, but there was something there. I thought, no, we can, you know, there was definitely something there. And, and I just thought, well, I'll give it a go. So Island said to me, go over to Dublin, do a few songs as a test session and see how it goes. So we didn't do Linger in the first uh, session, but we did do Dreams. And I always remember doing that and thinking, actually, this is a killer track. This this is great. Her vocal on it was just wonderful. And it's one of those sessions where everything we tried really worked as well. I kind of, I wanted to incorporate that kind of stuttering kind of guitar, you know, like a tremolo guitar. Mm. I was a big fan of Bring on the Dancing Horses by Echo and the Bunnymen around that time. And it had that kind of, you know, kind of guitar kind of thing that was kind of beating in time to the rhythm of the song. So kind of put that, I just wanted to put that in there and I got Noel to do like a slide. He'd never done slide guitar before, but one thing I felt was this vocal started and the vocal went all the way through without a break. So I said, we need to have a little bit of a break here, just something different. And that worked as well. So every little thing we tried seemed to happen and work. So it was a happy session. As you might well know, you know, when it first came out, it was completely ignored, but um, it got re-released a year later and it's become that evergreen hit that we know, that we know and love now. Dolores, um, her vocal style in those early records has got a bit more of an intimate feel to it. Yeah. Was that just natural at the time? It was natural at the time. And that was something that I think she grew out of, you know, on later. I tried to get her to go back to that when I worked them later on in, the, in their career. But I think you've got to understand that because their shows are getting bigger and bigger and they're playing bigger and bigger stages. Yeah. I think she felt she had to project all the time. So her singing style did kind of change. Uh, and I, I think for the worst personally, but but I can see the reason why they were doing it because they were just playing such big shows. You know, they couldn't carry on making kind of intimate type music really. It had to be delivered and belted out. So I think that kind of, that kind of led to that change in direction in her vocal styles. 
And how does that process work when you have an artist at the start of their career to being established for a few decades? I assume that the artist naturally becomes more confident in the studio. Does it become more of a... Yeah, I mean, you've got to you've got to win their trust. You have to kind of... Obviously, when someone's kind of very naive and green, it doesn't mean they're not talented. It just means they yeah. haven't quite learned how to kind of get the best of what they do together or perhaps know when they've done their best, you know. So that's what my ears are there for as a producer is to be that first set of public ears that hears it and goes, yes, that's good, or mm, perhaps you should think about doing that again, where, you know, so I, I think you just got to win their trust. And and also, you know, you've got to be, you don't want to destroy someone before they've even started. You don't want to pull, be some, pulling someone apart, you know. Yeah. I mean, you know, sometimes someone could be singing and it's really not, in tune or kind of it's not really good good enough at all but you don't you don't certainly don't tell them that yeah you know you, you find subtle ways of kind of perhaps getting another performance out of them and seeing if you can squeeze things one way or the other you know but that's only something you can learn uh as you progress really and a lot of record a lot of record production is man management it really is it's not just how good you are with the technical side of things well, I assume that's the difference between someone who's an engineer behind the desk and a producer who has a bit more of an artistic role. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a crossover period, obviously, in many ways. But you're right. Sometimes you're, where your pro, where your priorities lie uh, as a producer is, is much more on the yeah the creativity and the man management side rather than getting too hung up on the details of all that vocal distorted there. You know, whatever, you know. So yeah.
And another band that you're uh, strongly associated, obviously, is Blur, and uh, you, you've chosen Beetle Bum. Very interesting period for the group who decided to make a, an about turn in their career. But um, going back to the early days, I've read it was actually you that, that sought Blur out to work with them? Yeah. Uh, what happened was I'd heard uh, She's So High, their first single, and I really liked it. And I saw a video for for it on um, on some TV show on Sunday afternoons on, on, on BBC. And I, I thought, well, I really like this band. And I, and I saw the video. I thought, yeah, they've got something about them. They look, they look really great as well as sounding great. And uh, my manager, uh, Gail Coulson, at that time, she was managing Jesus Jones, and I knew Blur were on the same label as Jesus Jones, uh, Food Records. So I said to Gail, next time you're going to the label, because she was going in quite often dealing with the Jesus Jones stuff, can you let David Balfe know that I'd be interested in doing a session with them? And um, you know that information was given to them, but they came back initially and said, oh, thanks, but no thanks. We're going to try the next session with the same production team that had done the first single, so, which is fair enough, you know, because they had done a good job. Yeah. But for whatever reason, they tried it and it hadn't worked out. So they kind of then came back and said, actually, we would like to meet Stephen. So I went along and met them. We had a beer together and it was decided we'd go in the studio and do a couple of songs as a test session. And one of those was There's No Other Way. I subsequently, the next day after I finished that session, I had to go off to New York for two months because I was working with the Psychedelic Furs. I came back and There's No Other Way just come out and, out and was kind of shooting up the charts. So it was all like, oh, wow, let's do some more. So mm. I was in the frame to do some more, but I only did about a third of that first album. And then the second album, I wasn't in the frame at all. But David Balfour decided he didn't want me to do the next record. So I really thought that ship had sailed and I'd, I'd missed out. But uh, as you know, uh, subsequently I was asked back to do uh, Modern Life is Rubbish. Yeah, the rest is history, really. The Blur album. so that period the whole sort of brit pop thing yeah and and quite quite rightly it had kind of run it run its course yeah well i i I was very aware that after we'd finished doing the great escape that the boys had been touring and recording non-stop for many many years and they were pretty well burnt out and i think there was a general consensus that something had to change so one of the things was recording in a different studio because I, I, all the albums are, up to that point had been recorded at Maison Rouge Studios, which is a studio in Fulham that I used quite a lot. So you know, I was very aware of a lot of things were going to change. And so I was very relieved that when I heard uh, that I was one of the things that wasn't going to be changed. <laughs> they, they wanted to carry on working with me, but they wanted to do things in a different way. Yeah. And one of my first things I had to do for that record was go around to Graham and kind of offer a piece uh, offering from Damon. Now, Damon asking me, can you have a word with you know, Graham and see if you can talk him around? Because Graham just didn't want to be in the studio with, with anyone in the band for a while. He was going through a kind of a dark time and he wanted some space. So, you know, it was, again, it was one of those things that I was so greatly relieved that I was going to be working with them. But it was interesting that it was a completely new kind of branch in their kind of tree of life, as it were, for Blur. It was kind of going, we're taking a bit of a turn here. And so, um, again, it was a great relief that when we came out with that album, and although it's willfully kind of slightly low fi in places and it's kind of, you know, it's not as commercial as as perhaps Park Life and, and The Great Escape were, ironically, it came up with their biggest hits, you know. So, mm. and Beetle Bum, I thought for me, again, it was one of those, one of those key tracks. When, you, when, you, when you're recording an album, sometimes you get to a point and you think, 
you, you get a couple of key songs that really make you go, I know we are onto something here, something really, really good. Yeah. And it kind of gives you then the strength to go on and work on some of the other tracks, which might, you might need a little bit more kind of chipping away at, you know, but Beetle Bum felt right all the way through the whole process of recording it. It just felt, it just felt right. And I always remember when we went to Iceland, because again, Damon wanted to do something different. So we, we came up with the idea of going out somewhere quite remote and Iceland came up and we went there for, um, to do the vocals. He wanted to have two weeks with me out there doing vocals and stuff. And I always remember the, like, the way I work is that I'll let Damon do five or six takes and then I'll compile the best bits and make a compilation of, and then come back and listen to it. And I always remember coming in the next day and putting it up on those big speakers and putting up the, the, comp- the compiled vocal on top of the uh, backing track and sitting there thinking, well, this is really, really special. And again, it stood the test of, uh, the test of time really well, I think. It has. Was it Damon or Graham or the rest of the band who, who really drove that new sound? I think... Really, it was a joint. It was a, just a, a joint decision. Damon realised that to please Graham, something had to change, and so you know, I think Damon kind of offered up the songs in such a way, or the ideas, of the songs that they they weren't going to have so much, you know, brass and strings and have be orchestrated so much. They were going to be a little bit more primal and a little bit more dark. I mean, you know, if you look, if you look at the subject matter of all the songs on that album, they're much more in the first person, whereas up till then, yeah. he was writing about characters, writing in third person. So everything became a little bit more inward looking and a little bit darker, I think. Uh, and and um, yeah, as I said, you know, there was a certain amount of kind of lo-fi sensibility as well kind of chucked in there. And just, just a little bit looser, not being quite so uptight about making things really, really, really tight or whatever. You know, it was, it was a great album to make. It was really good.
to one of the great English songwriters, Stephen Duffy, Autopsy from I Love My Friends. So you'd originally worked with Stephen in, in the mid-80s towards the start yeah, of his... Yeah, I mean, Stephen was a, one of my first record productions uh, or co-productions. You know, I worked with him when he was Stephen Tintin Duffy. Yeah. And uh, we got on very well. Again, he's completely different to the Smiths, but I was working with him in that same period, you know, in, in the 80s. And... And Stephen came back to me in the 90s there and asked me to work with him on this solo record. Again, I just I think he's a fantastic writer and his lyrics are incredible. Yeah. And if we're talking about dark songs, I think I was talking about Beetlebum. This is even darker. I mean, the lyrics on this, I just remember as I because I always write down the lyric as I hear it, you know, so helping with the comp comp in the vocal when you know the singer is there doing his bit. And uh, I just thought, God, this this is so dark, you know, the way he's kind of talking to his partner and saying, you know, basically, I don't love you, you know, this really look at our relationship and just pull it apart. And and um, and I just feel that this is one of those songs again with the, with the distorted drums. It's pretty, but it's dark at the same time, you know. It's kind of, and, and 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 again, I think it's someone who's not really been given a fair kind of crack of the whip, as it were, in recognition wise. And uh, so, again, I thought tonight would be a perfect opportunity to go, to give 
shine the spotlight a bit on this song and this artist because I, I, I think he d- deserves it. I recall buying the Duffy album, which was I think the one before this, and it was a bit more upfront and kind of a bit more in, in that uh, Britpop pack in a way. Yeah. And, and this feels yeah. a bit more lilac time in terms of more of that yeah. personal confessional feel. Yeah. And I just think that line, I laugh when you weep, is just so like, oh, that's, that's, that is nasty. And But as I say, it's just done this way that it's like he's whispering in your ear, you know. And, and I just I just think it's a fantastic piece of songwriting. I really do. It's been reissued on Needle Mythology, hasn't it, that album? Yes, it has, yeah. Yeah, it was really nice of Pete Perfidus to do that because, again, I thought Pete feels the same way as I do. He feels that that record hasn't been given enough recognition. So it was great to kind of have that happen recently.
so we go on to Valerie by the Zootons now from their Tired of Hanging Around album. The Zootons' debut album was produced by Ian Brodie, and then yeah. we talked about different ways of connecting with the group. Was it you or them this time? Well, no, it was them approaching me. Again, um, yeah, the record label, I think it was Ireland again, but I can't believe how many records I've done for Ireland. <laughs> but actually, they've been spread out over a long period of time. But um, no, Ireland contacted me. I was actually quite surprised because I thought Brody had done a great job on that first album. Yeah. I was thinking he would be doing that as well. But I think Ian actually at the time was quite busy doing the Lilac time as well, and he wasn't taking on as right. much production work. But whatever reason, they asked me to go and meet them. And I remember going up to Liverpool on the train with the management and the band had set up in a rehearsal room and I walked in and they, they were all down one side of the rehearsal room, obviously the other side with the management. And they played these songs at me with such artistic ferocity, not like, you know, loud, but just just like energy. It just came it just came off of them, this kind of showmanship, you know, uh, they played like mm. as if their, their heart, you know, their, their lives depended on it. They just played with their heart and soul. And I just thought wow, you know, this is great. This band can really play. And the rhythm section was something else, you know, they really were. And then Dave, he's got such a great uh, delivery with his vocal. And yeah. I just thought, I really, really think this band is special. But Valerie was a song that even then, on that very first afternoon when they played it to me, I thought, that, that, that's, a, that's a good song. Just make sure we don't mess that one up because, because <laughs> you know, it can happen sometimes. Sometimes, you know, when you know a single and, and everyone gets really hung up about it, you just yeah. you focus on it too much and you end up killing it slightly. So it was just trying to capture it, but without getting too precious about it. And I think we did. Yeah, so obviously it, it, people, a lot of people know about this song because of the Amy Winehouse, Mark Wanson version. Uh, and I'm great, you know, I was, I was really chuffed to hear that they loved the song from hearing the original version. Yeah. But, uh, and for a while, that was the only version you heard. But I've noticed in recent years that people are beginning to play the original version, again, the Zootons version. And uh, it, it holds up well, I think. So uh, it was one of those ones that I was surprised came my way, but I'm really glad that it did because I think it is, uh, it's, it's, it's an all-time classic. Did that song evolve from the first time you hear, hear it at all, or was it relatively similar to the template? Very similar. The, the thing about the Zootons, they were so well rehearsed. Uh, it was just a case of getting a good sound, getting the, getting the best take, you know, making sure that they didn't, you know, I think we tried not to work with click tracks and things with that band because they had such a good rhythm section. You wanted to let the song breathe a little bit, you know, but uh, it was always a question of like, you want it to, you know, to be pretty much in the pocket, which they, to be honest, they normally were anyway. But um, no, it was great. It was just kind of managing to pick out the best bits. I think I always remember we strengthened the da, 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 a bit stronger. I think I think on the um, mm. original version, it might have just been uh, just one guitar, just perhaps just one sax playing it. But we decided to stack it up a bit, you know, guitar, sax and keyboard and make it a bit bigger and stuff. All the things that you try and do when you're making a record proper, you know, you can't do in the rehearsal room. Yeah, it just it just turned out great. And then again, you know, making sure that I really got a, a great you know, performance out of Dave you know, on vocals, you know. I just really wanted to make sure that touched you here, it hit you here, you know, and I think we, we, we got it, you know.
So yeah, so the same period of the Zootons, we have Kaiser Chiefs and Oh My God. So that was actually Nick Hodgson who um, slipped a demo your way, wasn't it? Yeah, so what happened was the Kaiser Chiefs, again, that was a a chance happening. It could have been like two ships passing in the night, but I I went along to see the Ordinary Boys, who are another band that I was working with in the 2000s. The Kaiser Chiefs were supporting them on their tour. I got there too late to see the Kaiser Chiefs, but I was talking with the Ordinary Boys after the show in the dressing room, and Nick came up to me. Uh, Nick from the Kaiser Chiefs and thrust this CD in my hand and said, oh, hi, I'm Nick from the Kaiser Chiefs. We would like to work with you. So I was like, okay, great. I put it in my pocket and I kind of bid him well. And I said, oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Set, but, you know, I got here late. It explained. And, but um, so anyway, I, I, I went, uh, took the CD home and um, and on it, it had Riot and Oh My God. And I think Caroline, uh, yes, which I think is yeah, I think it's that one. I think it's, uh, if I remember right. But whatever, it was three good tracks. And, you know, I thought, yeah, they, they sound good. And at the same time, the record label that beat the Be Unique, um, which is the label The Ordinary Boys are on, phoned me and said, we're thinking of signing the Kaiser Chiefs. Would you do a, a test session for us? Would you go in? It's a bit like doing the Blur thing again. Just go in and do a track, you know, and kind of uh, see how it goes. So, and, okay, fine, you know. So went in and we did I Predict a Riot and they went, great, we'll have some of that. <laughs> so they signed them <laughs> and that was the version that came out as a single. And then they said to me, oh, 
we like, want you to go back in the studio and do that next single because we're going to sign them now and we want to do another single. And they, and they said to me, can we do Oh My God? You know, I knew Oh My God was on the on the demo uh, CD. And I said to them, yeah, I said, but i tell you what, because at this point, by this point, I had seen them play live. I said, there's another song in their set called uh, Every Day I Love You Less Than This. And they said, the record label went, oh, just do both and we'll see which one comes out best. And in the end, they both came out as singles. But Oh My God, I think has really stood the test of time very well. It became like a, such a staple song in their, in, in, their, um, in their kind of set. I was always keen on the, I don't know if people picked up on it, but I, I, for me with the, um, with the Kaisers, I, especially with Peanuts keyboards, I, I used to kind of get inspiration from what Jerry Danners would have done with the specials or what Mike Barson would have done with Madness. Yeah. But, you know, although the guitar thing was quite strong and powerful in their songs, for me, the keyboards were kind of interesting, and you know, as well, you know, and and I had, I had it in my mind for some reason when we were doing, oh my God, that it was like a kind of beefed up modern day madness. You know what I mean? And also the vocal mm. delivery from Ricky, you know, it just had, had a slight kind of Suggs type thing about it. But you know, again, but, but a bit more kind of you know rock mixed in, perhaps you know, yeah. And they all play great on this. The bass, you know, uh, you know, line is superb. Uh, I, I think every, on every every level the song works. I think you know the bass line, the guitars, the, the, the vocal, everything. I think it's great. So uh, for me, uh, looking back on all the songs I've done with them, I think this one for me is most probably the, the pinnacle. It sounds like quite a quick process. Yeah, I think again, I just they were they'd been around the kind of around the houses a few times, the Kaisers, and they weren't going to let this opportunity pass. They really threw themselves at it with a lot of gusto, and again, they worked incredibly hard. Uh, once they got that ball, they weren't going to let it drop. You know, if I can use that as a kind of metaphor. And they certainly ran with it. And, and, and I, you know, I remember them either recording or being in the studio, uh, uh, sorry, either recording in the studio or touring. You know, they didn't stop for a good couple of years, you know, uh, uh, perhaps even more. They worked really hard. So, um, yeah, bless them. They did. They really threw themselves into it and they delivered.
So next to A Blur Connection, but Graham Coxon and Freaking Out, which is a, a certainly a, an indie anthem now and just an incredible sound on that record and, and such power. I think this was in the period where Blur were in, in kind of a, a bit of a fallow period, if you want to call it that. Yeah, well, what, what happened? I, we'd finished, um, Blur was done in 1996. Yeah. And I remember when they were touring that album, Damon coming coming to me post-gig after show and saying, um, the next, I just want to let you know that the next record we're going to work with William Orbit. And I was like, oh, God. I knew it was going to come sooner or later, so it was tough for me. Uh, and it's like a girlfriend leaving you, you know what I mean? It was a bit, mm. it was a bit of a tough thing. But I could see it was time. I mean, I'd had a good innings, yeah. I couldn't complain. Yeah. But when that album came out, the, the 13 album, which was the next album, they did some interviews and, and Graham had kind of was quoted as saying, oh, it was the, it's the first time I've enjoyed making a record or something, something along those lines. And it, it really hurt me. I was like, really? It kind of cut me to the quick a little bit. Mm. So I was pretty upset. So I didn't think I would ever be on Graham's list as someone you'd want to work with again. But, um, you know, he'd done, um, you know, at this point in the 2000s, I think he'd already done three solo records. And I think he decided that this time he wanted to actually give it a proper throw of the dice, as it were, to see if he could actually, you know, try and up the game a bit. And so he come up with this like, way. Well, he 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 asked his management to contact me. And so when he first, when I first got the, uh, the, the the you know the news come through that Graham wanted to work with me, I was like, well, are you sure? I, d- I don't want it to be the label want to work with me or you the management. I want it to hear from Graham. So they said, well, he's doing a show next week. Why don't you come along and see him? So I went to see him and. He sat down and had a really good heart to heart. He admitted he said those things. He said, but I never meant them. I was, you know, he, he was going through his drinking period at the time. And he said, I was just hitting out at anybody. I did, you know, I just, I just said those things just to kind of get a reaction, you know. And so I went, well, okay. And I said, well, you've convinced me that you really do want to work with me. So let's do it. Let's go in and make a record. And that was great. And, you know, we came up with Happiness in Magazines and on that album is Freaking Out. I mean, God, I mean, the guy played so hard on that record. He would basically play every single instrument, apart from one or two kind of session musician overdubs. Everything on that is Graham, and it's incredible. And in Freaking Out, I think everything on that is Graham. <laughs> he would put down a basic drum pattern, do a rhythm guitar, go and do the drums to the rhythm guitar, and then build it up bit by bit. And then just, you know, it's just incredible. And, and you're right, it's turned into a bit of an indie banger, really, hasn't it? So, uh, yeah, I'm happy with that. And when you've got such a great guitar line and it's recorded so well, was it a case of just um, plugging into the desk? How, how do you record such a... Oh, no, no, we're grand. We choose very carefully the guitars and the, and the amp combinations right. and, and also the pedals that he uses. Nothing is processed actually really in the uh, in the desk, apart from that bit of EQ perhaps, or but, you know, the sound comes from his fingers as well. You know, I mean, people can... People sometimes say to me, oh, can you give me the same sound as Graham? And I go, well, mm. I can give you the same guitar and the same amp, but it won't sound the same because a lot of it comes from the way he plays, the way he hits the strings and, you know, everything. He's uh, he's, he's an amazing guitar player. And I, again, I count myself very lucky. I think I've made more records with Graham Coxon than I have any other artist because it's not only yeah. Blur, Graham Coxon solo, but it's the Pete Doherty stuff as well and so on. So I, I, I think I've been in the control room more with Graham than anyone else. Nothing to say, nothing 
We have Bradford Like Water from their Your Bright Hours album. Bradford originally were a band that was signed to your own label. And was it the 87, 88 type period? Yeah, well, yeah, this this was a band that was signed to my label, the foundation label, at the end of the 80s. I was trying to self-fund that that label all by myself. I, I mean, in retrospect, I should have tried gone to a, a bigger label and asked, you know, for some backing, but I was trying to do everything myself. I was trying to be like the new factory records or the new, mm. um, you know, obviously rough trade or whatever, but I, 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 it was tough. And, and, and I got to a point where I, I just couldn't keep it going anymore. So I had to sadly had to kind of close it down. And, and Bradford were one of those bands. We actually did record an album 
for and um but it came out just as madchester started taking off and they were really not mm. part of the zeitgeist and so it kind of disappeared really and the band split up and they all went off and did other things um about 18 months ago i think uh, perhaps, perhaps slightly less ewan sent me some got you got in touch yeah. now i'll tell you how it worked about two and a half years ago a record label in germany had decided they want to put out a, a retrospective compilation of their stuff so i i went through my files and i managed to find some dat tapes with the masters of the thing so i sent it all off to them and I said you know good luck and you know i hope it all works out and that actually kind of kindled uh, Ewan and Ian starting doing some little bits of work together. They did a couple of acoustic gigs and then started kind of working on some new songs. And then Ewan sent me these things he was working on. I think he kind of first kind of reached out to me, like with the idea perhaps I could help mix them. But when I first heard them, I went, actually, you know, they need more than that. Mm. But I think there's something there. Why don't we join forces uh, and make a new Bradford record, but they obviously haven't got the you know, resources to pay me for my studio time or for my services. So I said, well, why don't we just come together as a team and do it and make it about, I'll become a member of the band and we'll work on this together. And that's how it works really. And we made this new Bradford album, which I'm very proud of. It's, it's been interesting kind of going through the whole thing of just taking a record from scratch and getting it out there, you know, uh, kind of choosing the the, the the artwork and so on and so forth. All the things that normally I don't get involved in, you know, I normally just make the record and go on to my next project. But it was interesting to, to do that and get involved. And I think the songs deserve to be heard. I really do. I think it's some great writing on the record. So it was, and it was really nice for me to kind of, kind of get back into playing again. You know, I played bass on it, a bit of guitar, a little bit of keyboards, but mo- mostly guitar and bass. And I really enjoyed playing again. You know, it was kind of nice to kind of do that. It was made really just to please Ian, Ewan, and myself. And when we finished it, I thought, well, actually, I think it deserves to get the, you know, to be uh, to be out there and see the light of day. So uh, it's out there now. I've read that Water and the Passage of Time is a, a bit of a, a theme for for that album. Yeah, it's true. I mean, again, Ian's a great lyricist. Yeah, you can take his his lyrics and like just look at them in a piece of paper. It's a fantastic piece of prose, you know. It's beautiful to to see and to read. Yeah, it's, it was it did suddenly hit us as we were working and, com- and compiling the songs and working on them, thinking actually there is that kind of thing of water being like, like the passing of time, you know, and so on, which is suitable for people of our advanced ages. <laughs> and um, so, uh, yeah, I think there is that. And uh, that's why, you know, we it, it's on, there's water on the cover of the record and, you know, there's water on kind of in some of the videos. And Like Water, obviously, I thought was the key song to start the record off. And how do people get their hands on on that Bradford album? Is, have you got a band camp or is it available? In yeah, it's, um, I'm, I'm not sure we've got a band camp page, but it was, uh, there's a, town townsend page which is the page that our distribution company uh, um, sells all our, our recorded output through so it's available on vinyl and cd and obviously you can stream it as well if you if you choose but uh yeah I, and i think there's more to come as well uh, I, I think uh we, we you know we enjoyed the experience so much i certainly don't think we're going to start getting in the mo- into transit vans and going up and down the motorway <laughs> and doing gigs but i think I think we're happy just to be a recording project, you know, uh, and do. I'm not going to say never playing live, but at the moment, that's not our priority. The main thing is creating in the studio and getting things out there. Well, it feels like a great way to finish the show because we talked about how you got into the industry and playing in groups, and at the minute, you're combining both of you two. Come full yeah, you're combining yeah. the two. Yeah, well, that was part of the reason why I chose it, I thought, you know, because it is true. You know, after years and years and years sitting behind the desk and being a producer, 
it was nice to actually become a band member again, you know. It kind of happened slightly as well for me when I got involved with Pete Doherty on that solo tour, you know, uh, when we did the album and then I toured with him and started playing on you know, stage again. I thought actually I, I had quite, I had missed it in some ways, you know, kind of that thing of being a musician and playing on stage. But I, I, I there's no doubt about it. The, the, the studio is, is the environment that I'm kind of more comfortable in. And, uh, and hopefully in the time that I've been in the studio, I've made some recordings over the time that people have enjoyed. So that's that's that, that's important to me. And you've got your own studio now re- recording other bands, is that right? Yeah, I mean, most producers these days, you do need to have your own studio. I mean, back in the day, you didn't. You yeah. just turned up here, there and everywhere, you know, because there was a budget to go and hire a nice big studio and you went in with the artist and recorded. Now that's no longer the case. So I've got a room where I can finish off and mix things and, you know, work on, work on projects that I'm producing like that yeah because obviously I'm, I'm comfortable there and I know the sound and so it, it suits me but uh you still can't beat every now and then kind of going off and hiring a nice big proper studio for the day and getting the drums out and you know recording a band together so um there's still more of that to come hopefully fantastic well Stephen what a pleasure it is I mean this is a collection of the best records made in the last 35 years certainly from a British perspective thank you as well as Irish so we can't really say fair than that really so thank you nice one all right all all the best Jason take care Bye. bye Oh
Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew Podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.